As the threat of invasion weighed heavily on the nation of Judah, the people of God wondered what hope they had left. The words broken and shattered were used to describe their future. Hunger and distress awaited them in the night. Where would they go for relief? Who would be the source of their salvation? For the ancients, stability looked like a father. Fathers were the founders of empires, the heads of households, the ones responsible for the flourishing of their families. Those looking for security and provision were conditioned to set their eyes on their patriarch. But where does one look when earthly fathers have failed? Judah's fathers were deeply flawed. The father of humanity had fallen in a garden. The fathers of their nation had proven themselves fallible. Their prophets, priests, judges, and kings had led them astray. Fathers came and went, with the ruins of instability in their wake. And yet, here was a prophet, speaking of a child who would be born, yet who had no beginning. A son given, who would be without end. The one who would carry the government upon his shoulders. The one would be called Everlasting Father. For the people of God, this messianic title was a promise of provision. The Messiah would be a father to them, a father so wonderful he could counsel them to righteousness, a father so mighty he could meet their every need. As father, he would be the founder of their future, the head of their household. He would assume full responsibility for their protection, their provision, their flourishing. And unlike their previous fathers, the everlasting father would not fail. This father's plans would not be bound by the constraints of time. This father's protection would not be limited by age or death. This father's presence would never decline or decay. This father's love would never grow weary or faint. Eternal provision, unending compassion, enduring hope, this everlasting Father has a name. His name is Jesus. Good morning. Hey, do me a favor. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 28. We're going to be in Matthew 28. We're going to bounce around, but we're going to kind of start there. Um, we are in the final countdown to Christmas, aren't we? Uh, six days away, I know that many of you are doing family things and have work events, and it's a busy time of year. Thank you for taking the time to worship with us this morning. And um, the other thing that I would ask is, is I really hope you guys make some time to come out uh, this afternoon to our family Christmas night, uh, it's, or this family Christmas day. It's from 3 to 7 tonight. Um, there's going to be a live nativity um, you know, true uh, confessions. Last year we had a camel that's coming back this year. The camel may have bitten someone in the head last year, so give the camel some space. Um, but it's really fun. There's a petting zoo, and there's going to be all sorts of games and crafts and fun stuff. Looking forward to that. Um, so we're in a series that we're just looking at these names of Jesus uh, as given to us by the prophet Isaiah. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, Prince of Peace. And today we land on the one that, that I believe with all of my heart is the most important name of the four, and it's the one that we struggle with the most. And it's this idea of everlasting father. 
That, that, that Jesus is not just a baby in a manger. He is also the living God who is a father and draws near to us. I think this is the picture of God for us that is the hardest for us to accept and embrace. And, and let me prove it to you. Do me a favor. I want everyone in here right now, close your eyes. All right, everyone have their eyes closed. Right, here's what I want you to do now. I want you to picture God in your head. All right, do you have that picture of God? All right, now open your eyes back up. Can't be closed too long or you guys will doze off on me. I know how this goes. Um, here's what I would have bet. If you're like me, when you picture God in your mind, he is a mighty ruler of the world. He is probably sitting on a throne in heaven. He might be surrounded by angels. He might be physically on a throne. But we think of him as all-powerful, almighty, and listen, far away from us and separate and distinct. It's easy for us to get our minds wrapped around this idea of all-knowing and all-powerful and creator. But the fact that this God also draws near to us and is a father is very, very hard for us to deal with on an inner personal basis. And here's the other thing I would say too, I would argue if God is wonderful counselor and if he's mighty God and if he's the Prince of Peace, none of that really matters if we don't view him as our father. So here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna look at this idea of Jesus as our everlasting father. And here's the big question I have for us this morning, it's this, are you allowing yourself to be formed by your everlasting father. And, and Cal, why do you use that word formed? Like, I don't really understand what you mean. Well, well here's the first point. Um, dads have a unique power to form their children. Did you know that? I, I would argue the most important forming influence on this earth is fathers. Or maybe here's a better way to say it. Daddy wounds are a real thing, aren't they? They, they absolutely are. I was uh, in a mentorship program a few years ago and uh, I was paired with a mentor. He, he's a pastor out in California. His name's Larry Osborne. He uh, pastors in San Diego. He has led a massive ministry. He's pastored faithfully for decades and decades. And he was sitting with a group of about 10 or 12 of us. And, and he goes, um, guys, I want to tell you something about ministry that you're not going to learn in school, but that's going to be super helpful for you as you lead people. And he goes, here's what you need to know. And he goes, it's true of 99.9% .9 of men most women too, but he goes, 99.9% .9 of men have some sort of daddy wound that they carry with them to adulthood that shapes and forms their life. He goes, all men almost have a daddy wound. And um, for some, it's obvious reasons, right? Maybe there's a divorce in your family, right? Maybe dad blew up the family. Maybe dad wasn't around. Maybe he worked too much. Maybe you weren't prioritized in your father's life. Maybe your dad was abusive or angry. Maybe you never even knew your father. And we're going to get to that in a minute. But here's the truth. When dads fail their families, their children, it leaves real scars. And it's also going to shape and impact how you view your heavenly father. But here's what's interesting, and this is the point Larry was making. Even people with great dads, even people who have amazing relationships with their father, they're still going to be shaped and formed by daddy wounds. And, and, and here's what I mean. Maybe um, they will try to live to make them proud. 
to, to live up or live for their father's approval or, or live up to the reputation or even idolize their dad. Even great dads still have a unique power to form and shape their children, sometimes in negative ways. It's unavoidable. And, and here's what I would say if I could be completely honest. So when I was in like late elementary, early middle school, my dad wasn't a pastor. He was a real estate developer and he worked for my grandpa. And my dad was very successful at what he did. He did big projects all over the country and he worked really, really hard. And um, it would not be uncommon when I was in third, fourth grade, my dad would be gone two weeks out of the month. He would be in uh, Chicago working on a deal. He would take, you know, two week trips to Japan or to Hawaii. Like he was a very, very hard worker. And, and so what happens is, is I go to college and I get married my wife and I, we go to Orlando. We're part of a church plant down there. I'm the junior high and high school uh, youth pastor down there. And, and then um, my dad comes over on, on a vacation and says, hey, we're really feeling this call into full-time ministry. We want to plant a church in Spring Lake. Would you guys like to be a part of it? Yeah, sure. We'd love to come home, be a part of it. Think that would be great. Like, to be completely honest, the first five, six, seven, eight, nine years of doing ministry with my dad and working with him, for sure, part of my psyche was... I want to prove to him that I have the same work ethic that he does, that I can work just as hard, that I can be successful, that he can trust me with things. There was absolutely this, man, I'm working with my dad and I want to prove to him that I saw what he did and was appreciative of it and I could replicate that. That's for sure part of my psyche. In fact, I remember early on um, in the church, we were officing out of uh, international aid right when the church planted and what would happen was, is Chris and I would usually roll into the office between 8.15 and 8.30, and it was driving me crazy be, because my dad was always the first one in the office. He would always beat us in. And, and it was like, you know what, my dad doesn't even take a salary for the church. He's doing this just because he loves the Lord and loves people. And I'm like, I'm the one getting paid. Like, I've got to beat him into the office. This isn't right. So I'm like, you know what, I, I'm going to do it. So I showed up to work first day of the week. I got there at 8 a.m. He was already there. I'm like, okay, challenge accepted. Um, next day, 7.45, I roll into the office. He's already there. He's working. Next day, 7.30, Mary's like, why do you keep setting your alarm earlier and earlier? And I'm like, it's a daddy thing. Like, just leave me alone. Let me deal with it, right? Um, right, I uh, get there at 7.30. He's there. He's working. Next day, 7.15, he's there. And finally, like, all right, I'm getting to work at 7 a.m. I'm going to win. I roll into the office. There's no other cars in the parking lot except his. He's still there. And at that point, I'm like, you know what? That guy's got psychological issues that I'm not going to be able to unwind. And I gave up. I'm like, I'm done trying. This is a game that I'm not going to win. But for sure, that was a forming and shaping influence in my life. I found this incredible stat that I shared at our Vertical Men Night this fall that we had. It said this. It says, if a child is the first Christian in a family, there's a 3 to 7% chance the rest of the family follows. If mom is the first, there's a 17% chance that the rest of the family follows. And if dad is the first, there's a 93% chance that the rest of the family follows. There is something almost supernaturally power about a dad's ability to form and shape their children and families. Here's another uh, statistic. In a 26-year study, researchers found that the number one factor in developing children who are compassionate towards others, both as children and adults, was one-on-one -on -one time with their dads. And, and when... Jesus calls himself the everlasting father. I need you to hear this. This is an invitation for him to say, I want to be the forming and shaping influence of your life. 
I want to be so near to you. I want to be close to you. And I want to be the one who forms and shapes you. And by the way, as a dad, knowing how much power there is in dads, it terrifies me when I think about my kids. Like I was hanging out with Bo yesterday, and Bo, he's eight. All he wants to do is hang out with me all of the time. And we were playing some stupid game on our iPhones, and I looked at him, and I was just like, man, I'm going to screw you up, and I don't even know how yet, right? Dads have a unique ability to shape their children. So what I want to do now is I want to talk about three promises our everlasting father makes to us. Here's the first, and this is from Matthew 28. He promises to be present. He promises to be present. Matthew 28, 18 says this. This is right as Jesus is ascending into heaven and he's about to leave his disciples. He's already risen from the dead. He says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. To, and he says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Look at the last thing he says to them in Matthew. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The last thing recorded in Matthew is Jesus saying, I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you, which is amazing because think about how the story of Jesus started. Right? It started with shepherds appearing into a field, or, or, or angels appearing to shepherds in a field. And what is the first thing the angels say? They say, fear not. You don't have to be afraid. For behold, I have great news of great joy that will be for all people. So, so you could make an argument that you could bookend the Gospels with this one statement, that you and I don't have to be afraid anymore because God has drawn near to us. He is with us and he's never leaving. All right, now look here. I know that this is the tension point for many in this room. When it comes to the idea of God being an everlasting father, you are thinking to yourself, my earthly dad wasn't around. So it's cool that God says he's going to be like this, but this isn't what I have experienced. Or maybe you're thinking to yourself, no, when dad was, was around, it wasn't good news of great joy for all people. It was get safe, stay away, hope dad doesn't blow up. That it wasn't the safety and joy and love you're describing. So it's hard for me to believe that God's like that when all I know is what's very, very different. And here's what I love about the Bible church. Do you know that God doesn't shy away from this reality? That the Bible speaks right into the reality of broken families? David, in Psalm 68, he writes this. He says this, sing praises to his name. Lift up a song to him who rides through the desert. His name is the Lord. Exalt before him. Look at verse 5. Father to the fatherless, protector of the widows, is God in his holy habitation. God acknowledges that our world is broken. God acknowledges that earthly fathers will either die and not be there present or physically present for their kids or, or they will um, spiritually maybe be absent or emotionally be absent, that there are people who have grown up fatherless and God says, I will be the one who fills that void. I will be the one who draws near. I will be the father to the fatherless. In fact, I would make an argument that there's a pattern you see in scripture that God draws remarkably near and does amazing things to men who didn't have good earthly fathers. Right? Think about Moses. Right? Do you remember what happened to Moses when he was a baby? His mom shipped him down a river in a basket because all of the Jewish kids were getting killed in Egypt. He never even knew his earthly father. He grew up in the Egyptian king's court. He was a son of the enemy, and the dad didn't even really care about him. 
And what does God say? I'm going to draw near to you. And you will be my voice. And you will be the one who leads my people out of captivity. I am going to be closer to you than a brother. I will be the one who leads you and guides you. And I will not leave you. Right? Think about King David. Um, King David is a therapist's dream. His dad screwed him up so bad. Well, like, could you imagine... Um, hearing that the prophet of Israel was coming to, to your house because he said that one of your father's sons was going to be the next king of Israel. And then your dad's saying, all right, all of the other sons, you get ready for the prophet. David, you're not even worth being considered my son. You go hang out in a field with sheep. Like That would really mess you up, right? But like his own dad was so out on him that he's like, nah, it's definitely not going to be you. you. You do the work of the family while the other ones, one of them's going to get anointed. And what does God say? He says, no, no, no. You're going to be my king. You're going to be the man that is after my own heart. You're going to be the greatest leader this country has ever known. And in fact, the Messiah is going to come from your lineage. That you will be the father of the Messiah through your line. Right? Think about Jesus. Right? Here's what we know about Jesus. Right? In the story of Christmas, Joseph is very present, isn't he? He gets uh, a vision by the angels. He takes care of Mary. He takes them to Bethlehem. And, and here's what we know. Once Jesus starts his ministry 30 years later, um, Mary is very present still, but Joseph we don't hear anything about. And, and biblical scholars across the world agree that most likely that means that Joseph was dead, that he had died at some point in Christ's childhood. So here's what that means that even Jesus knows what it's like to lose a dad. That even Jesus knows what it's like to be fatherless. So how perfectly equipped is Jesus to be the father of the fatherless? He knows exactly what it's like. And here's the truth. There are certain things that I, I think only families and only parents um, can do for their kids. I remember when uh, I um, was in Florida and um, I'd gotten a call from Mary. Mary was at school, and we just found out that we had lost our first kid through miscarriage. And uh, I was like, Mary, do you need me to come pick you up? And she's like, no, I can drive home. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to meet you at home. And uh, so what I did was, is I, I, as I'm driving home, getting ready to meet Mary, I, I give my mom a call, and what happened happens with my mom every time I call her. She doesn't answer, and it goes straight to voicemail. My mom is world-renowned at not answering her phone. Um, she's getting a little bit better, still not great, just a heads up in case you ever need to contact her. Um, so then I called my dad, and my dad's way better about answering his phone, and they had been praying about us. They knew that the doctors were a little concerned, and, and um, I called my dad. I told him what was going on, and uh, he's like, how are you doing? And I said, Dad, I just feel really alone right now. And he's like, all right, I'm coming. And the next day, I think he and then Mary's mom, Lori, they came down and they just sat with us and, and, and hung out with us. And, and that's such a cool picture of, of Jesus, our everlasting Father, being like, I will be the one who is near. I will be present. I will not leave you. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Next thing I want you to see, a promise our everlasting Father makes is to protect us. You know, the cool thing about God is, is not only is he present, but he is there protecting us. And, and listen, church, here's what I would say about that. There are so many things in our life that are outside of our control, but there is nothing that is outside of the control of our perfect heavenly father. Like one of the things that scares me most as a dad, and I think is most humbling as a dad, is how limited we are to protect our kids. 
Like as an earthly father, I have limitations to how I can protect my kids. And that's why when a couple weeks ago I hear of a school shooting in Detroit, guess where my mind goes? It goes straight to what if it was my kid's school? What if that was my kids? I couldn't be there. I couldn't protect them. What would happen? And that is terrifying. But, but, but church, our everlasting father is not limited like our earthly fathers are. Right? Again, David, who knows this so well, he writes this in Psalm 23. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil because you are with me. He says, even in the hardest parts, even in the darkest moments, even when it feels like I'm walking through death, I don't have to be afraid because my heavenly father is near and he is protecting and he's faithful. So much, even this Christmas, is outside of our control, isn't it? Nothing is outside of the protection of our heavenly father. He's protecting us in the process. Then here's the third, and I think this one might be the hardest for us. It's this. Um, our, heaven, our heavenly father, our everlasting father delights in you. He doesn't just love you. He actually likes you and is proud of you and wants to be near you. I had a conversation with Mary this week, and I was like, I'm preaching on Everlasting Father. It's kind of a hard passage to, to, to really, really nail down or a hard theme. And I'm like, Mary, when you think of this idea of Everlasting Father, what passage do you think of? And she's like, oh, I think of Jesus' baptism. So let me read that for you really quick. It says this. It says, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And I'm like, why is that what you think of? And she's like, I love how God views his Son, Jesus. He's like so proud of him, he has to tell everyone. And she's like, that is how we are viewed in Christ, that God doesn't just love us, he likes us, he delights in us. And church, here's the problem we have. If we're honest, too often we view ourselves and our relationship with God through the lens of our failure, don't we? Right, when we think of how God might view us, we think of our sin, our inconsistency, how we fall short over and over and over again, how we continue to struggle with the same things. And we're like, man, God must really not like putting up with us. And maybe he loves us because Jesus forgave our sins, but man, he probably doesn't really like me. He probably doesn't really want to be around me. And he's probably just perpetually frustrated. But here's the crazy thing. The crazy thing is, is we're not even that way with our own kids, even though we're not perfect. Like, let me explain. Like, I have two boys right now. They're six and they're eight. When you have a six-year-old and eight-year-old, all you're doing, it feels like 90% of the time, is constantly instructing and disciplining. Hey, don't do that. Don't do that to your brother. Hey, you know, what, what were you thinking? Hey, think about others. Don't be so selfish. No, you can't do that. Like, like here's an example. My six-year-old son, Judah, our, our girls had a basketball game in Muskegon yesterday. Judah just decided it would be a good idea to eat 20 mints in a five-minute period. He had explosive diarrhea all afternoon. We had to cancel a small group because we thought the flu bug was hitting our house. No, my kid just ate 20 mints. It's like, Judah, what are you thinking? And Mary and I, we have this look that we give each other. Like, like we can't say it with our mouths because they'll hear it, but we have this look and it's in our eyes. And what we're communicating is the kids are driving me crazy right now. Right? You know that look? It's like, man, I can't handle it. Okay, but here's the truth. Even though all of that is true, I still adore my kids. 
I think they're incredible. I think they're amazing. All I want to do is be around them, and I'm so proud of them. Like, I'm pumped about when I'm done preaching here today to go home and hang out with my kids this afternoon. I love them. And listen, I am a flawed father. I have a sinful nature. I am not perfectly humble and patient and kind. And if God is all of those things, why do we believe that he wouldn't view us with even more love than we can give our earthly children? He doesn't just love us. He actually likes us. Paul hits on this in Romans 8 when he says this. He says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He says, God is a God who is for us. He has given us everything in Jesus Christ. Like, listen, if you don't believe what I'm saying, if you want to be certain that God is for you, just look at the manger. Look what God was willing to do on your behalf to reconcile you to himself. He gave everything. He gave the absolute best. He gave himself. The creator son of God of the universe came and dwelt in flesh and died on our behalf. Right, when I think of Romans 8, I think of Christmas. Right, like I'm so excited. Or maybe here's a question, who's all done with their Christmas shopping? Okay, I see a lot of responsible people, that's good. All right, who hasn't started? Good luck. Yeah, way, way, way to go. Procrastinator is not, not a good year to, to procrastinate. You like can't get anything online, it's gonna be difficult. But listen, why do we give our kids and family members those we love Christmas gifts? Because we want to bring joy to their hearts into their lives. Like, I'm so pumped about watching my kids open the presents and getting what they asked for. Like, and that is the heart of God towards us. All right, I want to change gears here for a moment, and I want to talk about two things our Heavenly Father is not quickly. Um, the first thing, He is not, He's not a helicopter dad. God is not a helicopter dad. And you know what I mean by that, right? He is not the dad that's going to wrap his kids in bubble wrap before soccer practice because heaven forbid they fall down and scrape their knees. God's number one desire for us is not to keep us from pain and suffering or heartbreak. It is to grow us in holiness. And that means he's going to let us walk through the valley of the shadow of death sometimes because that pain is what we need to grow. We have to trust that he knows what is best for us. He knows what we need. And if we're going through a difficult season, it's because he loves us and he's shepherding us through that process. This isn't exactly a father-son analogy, but it's close. Um, a couple weeks ago, I was hanging out with Alec Bright. And Alec, he does some worship leading for us, but his primary job is he's the youth pastor. So, so a high school youth group, every um, night when they meet on Sunday, he oversees that, he leads that ministry. And uh, I did that for the first five or six years uh, of our church existence. And so we were talking, and, and he was struggling with something. And there was something going on in youth group that was frustrating to him, and he was kind of worked up, and he was venting. And, and I could tell he just was really, really bothered. And he wanted to, to talk to me about it, so I was in the loop. And, and I'm like, Al, um, I get that you're frustrated, and I understand why you're frustrated. But when I heard that this situation was going on, it actually made me really, really happy. And Al just shot me a look like, who are you? Like, why are you happy in my pain right now? And I'm like, Alec, here's why. Because I know that there's certain lessons that you can only learn through frustration. There's certain things you can only learn by, by, by seeing it play out in a way that isn't good. And you're going to learn and you're going to grow and you're going to be better for this in the future. I had to learn these same lessons. And it's not things that people can tell you. It's experiences you have to go through. 
And he was like, I guess I feel kind of better about that. And uh, we laughed and, and kind of got on with it. But, but God loves us enough to sometimes let us grow through pain. And then here's the other one. And, and this is important, church. Um, our everlasting father is not mocked. He is not mocked. And do me a favor, if you have your Bibles open, turn over to Galatians uh, 6. Turn over a couple of chapters. This is a, a letter written by Paul to a church. And, and in Galatians, the, the church, um, they were struggling with being bombarded with false teaching. They were a young church and people were coming in and were saying things that were untrue. And it was really, really messing with the church. There was no unity. There was a lot of division and strife. So Paul's writing a letter to remind them what the gospel is, what Christianity is. And here's what he says about God. He says this in Galatians 6, 7. He says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows from the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And then Galatians 6, 9 is my life verse. It's, he says this. He says, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have every opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are in the household of faith. Okay, but Paul says, listen, God is not mocked. Don't be deceived. And here's what I want you to see. He's writing this to Christians. He's writing this to a church. He's not writing this to unbelievers. This is not a moment where he's saying, hey, you better repent of your sin and trust in Jesus or you're going to face the wrath of God. No, he's writing to Christians who have been saved. And he says, listen, God is not the kind of dad who's going to let his kids kick him in the side. What we reap or what we sow, we will reap. Listen, even though we as Christians believe that we are forgiven of our sin, past, present, and future, once and for all by what Jesus did for us on the cross, and that God's love for us is not dependent on our performance, don't kid yourself and believe that your sin relationally still isn't a practical separator. And, and, and here's what I mean. Sin always separates. Sin separates people relationally. Right? If you lie to your spouse, you've just created relational separation. Now trust is broken, and that has to be rebuilt. And the intimacy and closeness, closeness you once have is broken. Sin separates. And even though God is still our Father, and He still loves us, and we're still a child of God, the experience, experiential relational aspect with God changes when we have unrepentant sin in our life. Like, think about how this worked growing up. Like, like, again, I had a great dad, but there were times in middle school and in high school where I did something stupid or was rebellious and got in trouble, and, and my house wasn't a fun place to be around when that was happening, right? I wouldn't stay out late, break curfew, do whatever I want, come home, throw my arm around my dad and be like, what's up, bro? It's not how it would work. I would get punished. I would have to keep my head low. I would have to like gauge the temperature of the room. How mad is mom and dad at me, right? It caused relational difficulty and it was my own fault because I was the one who was choosing to break their rules and buck against their authority. We have to remember God is a dad. And I think the best story or the best picture of that in the Bible is the story of the prodigal son, right? Jesus tells a story to give us the perspective of God as a father. But, but here's what I want you to see, church. Don't miss this. God let the prodigal son go, right? Like there was very real separation in that relationship for a long period of time. 
Now, he loved his son fiercely. He would do anything for his son. He was delighted when his son returned home. But when the son said, Dad, I don't want anything to do with you, he let him go. And, and man, we as pastors talk to so many people who are making choices to live with unrepentant sin in their life, and the conversation always goes the same. They're always like, man, I don't even know if I believe in God anymore. I don't know what to believe. It's just like he just feels so far away. And I'm like, yeah, the reason you're doubting, the reason you feel that way is you've got unconfessed, unrepentant sin in your heart. God isn't the one who's ran. You are. And he's waiting for you to come home. We have to start viewing our Heavenly Father as a father. And, and by the way, this is why so often we encourage you, like, just be humble and confess your sin and repent of it. It heals relationships horizontally and it heals relationships vertically. Like, it blows my mind over and over again how we as people who, who believe that we are all sinners who fall short of the glory of God and are dependent on Jesus for salvation, that when it comes to us, we have a very, very difficult time admitting that we're sinners that fall short of the glory of God. We get defensive, we make excuses, and it's like, no, 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 just be humble, confess, and let the healing begin. All right, so here's the last thing I want to talk about, and I'm going to call this uh, an Advent takeaway. And here's what I want to leave you with. It's this. It's that how you view your everlasting Father will define your perception of Christianity. I think everything is on the line in how we view God. Is he a father or is he not? I found this quote this week that I loved. It says this. It says, the thing that makes Christianity different from Judaism, the thing that makes the New Testament new and better is the reality that God is our father who draws near. But like, think about it. If God is only all-knowing and all-powerful and mighty, but he isn't our father, um, how is that any different than Greek mythology? They all had gods, and they were mighty, and they were powerful, and they didn't really care that much about humanity, right? Hinduism, there are millions of gods, and they have power, and they're mighty, but they are disconnected from humanity. The thing that makes Christianity unique is that God became flesh and dwelt among us. That he loved us so much that he did not spare his own son, but gave him as a sacrifice so that we could be reconciled to God. The thing that distinguishes Christianity is we have been grafted into God's family, adopted as sons and daughters. And here's what I would say. If we view God as anything less than a father who loves us and delights in us, we haven't fully understood the power of the gospel yet. So can I ask you a question? Does the reality that God is a heavenly father, does that shape and form your life? Like when you closed your eyes earlier in the service, did you view him as a dad who loves you, who delights in you? You know, I think of the story again of the prodigal son, that parable. There's like three different versions of the son we see. We see the first son who's at home and he's with the dad, but he really doesn't want to be under his dad's authority. And he's grinding at his father being like, just give me my inheritance. Give me what's mine. I want to do my own thing. I'm here, but I'm not really here. Is that you this morning? Right, the next picture is the son is in full-out rebellion. And no one's going to tell him what to do. He's having a lot of fun. He's living however he wants, but, but it's a road that's leading to destruction. He has isolated himself from his family and, and, and from his father and, and is living life on his own terms. Is that you? And then we see the third scene of the son who's like, you know what? I've come to the end of myself. 
And I don't care about what my role is in the family. I don't care about what tomorrow holds. I know I can't fix everything. I just want to come home and see my dad. Is that you? Are you so in awe and in love with your father who loves you that you just want to be near him? Because isn't that what Christmas is all about? That God draws near to us so that we might forever be near to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for um, this morning. I thank you for the beautiful truth that God is our everlasting Father. And uh, God, this is something that's hard for us to believe. It's hard for us to accept. It's hard for us to personalize. I would just ask that you would help us with that. And God, I just pray if there's people in this room who are far from you, that you would just call them home, that they would run to your arms. God, I'm so thankful that you are present with us, that you are protecting us that you are with us always, even to the end of the age. We love you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.